I'm David Woodshell, Director of Marketing and Communications at Amber and BGA, and you're listening to the Ambition Podcast. As we've become comfortably uncomfortable with the amount of change in the world as we move into a volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous new normal, I think it's fair to say that the only thing that is certain is change itself. And with that in mind, I'm really pleased today to be joined by Neil Usher, author of Elemental Change, Making Stuff Happen When Nothing Stands Still, to discuss some of the themes of his new book and how we can apply them to the current world of work. Well, hi, Neil. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today for the podcast. I thought it might be quite useful if we kick off by you sharing a little bit of information about yourself and and your background. Hi, yes. And thanks for inviting me. It's it's very much appreciated. Um, I'm Neil Usher. I've been in um, what can loosely be described as corporate real estate for almost 30 years, um, mainly looking after large scale um, corporate office portfolios for occupiers um, in a variety of sectors all around the world. Um, and each one of those um, assignments really has come with a, a, a huge responsibility in relation to leading change as well. Um, last couple of years, I've been the chief workplace um, strategist for uh, GoSpace AI, which is a dynamic occupancy planning tool, one of the first uses of artificial intelligence in in sort of property management. Um, And I've written two books. Um, I believe we're going to talk about one today, um, but The Elemental Workplace was published in 2018, uh, An Elemental Change late last year. Fab, thank you. And yeah, as you mentioned, we're here to talk about your new book, Elemental Change, Making Stuff Happen When Nothing Stands Still. Um, it probably sounds like a, a stupid question given the current environment and what's going on in the world. But what was the inspiration behind writing this book for you? Um, I should say the inspiration was long before COVID was even a, um, you know, even a number. Um, the inspiration really was that um, I guess the sort of the framework that I deployed in the elemental workplace I felt was quite portable. Um, and I was really thinking through sort of what, what else it was really that I'd been doing these these sort of 25 to 30 years and just concluded really that it had been leading change and, and leading change in very sort of you know disparate environments, very complex scenarios. Um, and that actually I'd learned a hell of a lot along the way. Um, and I felt that there was probably a gap in the market for um, a book about leading change for everyone, um, because we often distinguish between change in our personal life and change behind the revolving door in our professional life. And I, and I felt the two were very closely aligned. Um, and so I, I wanted to write a book about change from a practitioner's viewpoint, from someone who'd actually been there sort of leading those change programs rather than observing them or, or talking to, to people who'd led them. Um, and so I just felt like I really wanted to sort of use this framework from the elemental workplace, deploy it to see if I could really deploy it in the area of change and, and see if that would work to try and make change just a bit more accessible, a bit more understandable and a bit more grounded in reality, really, that the realities of everyday business life. I mean, there's an interesting conversation here, I think, because there a lot of overlap between the idea of change and the idea of agility. And um, I think, you know, traditionally people would have thought of, right, change has to happen because it's something that's enforced upon an organization that they have to, to change and adapt because of that. But by its definition, change seems completely different every time it needs to happen. And I'd just be quite interested in your thoughts on, on that line of thinking and how really leaders can prepare and master change if indeed it does look different every single time. Um, I think you're right. It, it is always different. Um, it's even different in the same organization. Uh, just about every change program I've ever um, been asked to look after has, you know, even though I think, oh, yes, I've done this sort of thing before, or I've, I've seen this before, um, the context, the people, 
people, the situation, the external influences, and the movement we see ahead of us is is always unique. So we're we're always in this situation where we're learning while we're leading change uh, at the same time. Um, so we we have to be prepared. And I spend a lot of time in the book focusing on preparation as opposed to planning. But the sort of the prepared mindset, ensuring that we have the right resources and tools around us. Because we very rarely have perfect information, you know that that situation that we're encountering as we move through it, we're influencing it. It's influencing us. We're involved. We're conflicted. You know, we're we're part of the situation that we're trying to lead as well. And so those ever moving pieces. That's why I say that that change is messy and life is messy because that's what we're encountering. We're moving into those spaces. We're being aware of what's happening around us. And to that extent, I think you know we're all leaders of change in one degree or another. We're doing that very same thing in our personal lives as much as we are in our professional lives. But in our professional lives, as you say, every every situation we encounter is going to be entirely unique. So the mindset we need, the, uh, the degree of preparation we need is going to be vital in that respect. So I suppose with that in mind, my, if my timelines are right, you would have been finishing and preparing to publish the book around the time that COVID-19 hit. And I think it's fair to say now that the world has changed for many pretty much overnight. And I know that a lot of the ideas and, and concepts within the book are based on a much wider arena. So not really considering COVID as you were planning the book. But I was really wondering how the pandemic impacted what you included in the final stages of the book or the way it was written in any way. Um, yes, it's. I've often been asked if I if I wrote it, you know, because of the pandemic, and and I think given timelines, it probably could have just about been done really by the time <laughs> it was published. But yeah, um, I'd actually just finished responding to the copy edit when the lockdown came. Effectively, I thought the book was actually finished, so I I was ready to submit it back to the publisher um, to go into sort of design phase, and they said, look, you know, stand down. It's it's okay. It's it's going to go back a few months. Um, to which my initial reaction was one of sort of frustration a bit disappointed yeah. thinking you know I'd, I'd geared everything up in my mind around a certain publication date and look this is a book about change and everything's changing we've got to get it out there and then I thought well actually let's go through it again let's have a you know spend some time to have a, a you know a, another full you know a forensic read through um Realistically, I probably added a couple of short paragraphs that referenced the fact there was a pandemic, um, but nothing else was edited or changed in respect to the book in relation to the pandemic. So I think, you know, that, that either means that you know, I, I felt I'd created structures and approach and a framework that that could apply to a world of whether pandemic or not. Um, and so I was sort of quite you know, quite happy about that. Or I'd completely misjudged the situation entirely, and and somehow I should have changed a lot of it. And I'm not quite sure which way it landed. But um, <laughs> I think that you know, I think the test for me was you know, does this apply in a in a in a world with a pandemic? Does it apply in a world without it? Um, is it portable? Because one of the aims of both the last book and this book is that they are they are time, as timeless as I could possibly make them. Um, you know, a lot of books reference current events and they reference people and organisations yeah. and brands and things that are very current. And the world of workplace is terrific for doing this because the minute you publish a photo of a workplace, you know, give it 18, 24 months and, and the book's out of date because the world has moved on. So I was very keen to make sure that it was as timeless and portable in time as possible and as i say i i didn't really change much at all and i'm and i hope in in time that will prove to be the right decision yeah absolutely 
And I think that brings me quite nicely to my next question, which is around the idea of planning and how that is connected to change. So when I started my career in journalism about 15, 20 years ago, we talked a lot about five-year plans, 10-year plans. And as my career sort of moved on, it's become a case of, right, well, there's no point in writing those features or looking at that strategy anymore because you need to be planning for the month ahead, the, the year ahead, as opposed to a longer term thing. So with mindset sort of focused on planning and strategy, I think the past 18 months have shown us that we can't plan for any external factor that is going to impact either our working lives or our professional lives. So what would your advice be to people who are sort of planning for the new normal, for want of a better word? Um, I think one of the sort of the, the things that I referenced fairly briefly in the book, actually, which I th- since I've talked about quite extensively, is is our ability or not to make sense of the situation that we're, we're faced with. Um, I did reference the Kinevin framework, which was developed by Dave Snowden when he was at IBM. And something that I'd sketched out myself that then when I read Dave Snowden's journey, really, to creating the Kinevin framework, realized that he'd actually already created that many decades before I'd sketched it on a, on a bit of scrap paper, um, was a sort of, you know, an early version of a sense-making tool that I think is quite useful for us, because I think it explains the difference between preparation and planning that's quite helpful. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I think we're struggling at the moment is that we, we, we tend to lump everything that we see and hear and experience into one big sort of pot, really, to try and make sense of it all. And we have to start pulling that apart. So how do we do that? And you may remember Donald Rumsfeld's speech about the known knowns and known unknowns, and that yeah. really was sort of that, that. That's really what I'm drawing on is 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 that that sort of sense making tool. So I think we can only plan when we're dealing with the known knowns. You know, we we have to have a degree of sort of you know of reliable information that enables us to formulate a plan because things have to happen as we expect them to happen. Um, and there's usually some sort of critical path and contingent um, events within that plan. So. Planning really only works in a very stable, very certain world. And when we think about most organizations, they're machines that are designed to engineer uncertainty out of their midst. You know, they're all about creating certainty, which in one way also means they stifle innovation because innovation occurs in is where uncertainty exists rather than where certainty exists. If, we, if we're certain that everything's going to happen we way, the way we think it's going to happen, then nothing interesting is going to happen at all. So... We then get into the area where we've got sort of known unknowns, the things we we are sure that we don't know. We can then formulate a plan with some options. So, you know, because we're looking at a sort of variety of paths that we may have to take. So, you know, we're we're on reasonably we're on reasonably safe ground because we we're fairly sure we know which of those paths we may take. But then we get into the area which I think we've experienced a lot of during this pandemic, which is the unknown unknowns, where you know it's impossible for us to plan if we have no idea what we don't know. Um, on, on that basis, we have to be prepared. That's where preparation really sort of rises to the surface here in, in, in comparison to planning. Um, being prepared means we, we are ready for any eventuality and, 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 and we're ready to cope with, deal with and navigate uncertainty. And that is very much the, the place we're at right now. But I think there's also a really interesting fourth pane in this in this little tool, which are the unknown knowns. These are things that we we kind of knew before the pandemic, but somehow we've either you know deliberately forgotten them, suppressed them, or we're in some sort of degree of denial. Things that haven't gone away, the problems and challenges we were dealing with before the pandemic that that are kind of still there and they're lurking. And we have to be 
honest with ourselves and own up to those. And if we think about this as a sense-making tool in our own lives and the decisions we have to make personally, it's just as useful a tool and applicable a tool right now to any personal decisions we and conundrums we're facing and paths we have to choose. But the really interesting sort of elements of this tool really are the unknown unknowns and the unknown knowns where where the need to be prepared rather than have a plan is paramount. So I think we're very much in an era now and we're going to stay in that era for some time where, where, where preparation is everything. And planning just becomes one of those resources that we deploy um, when we are prepared. Plans will have to be quite soft. They'll have to be flexible, fluid. They'll have to move with change. And you mentioned agile, and I think the the agile methodology that that sort of within software engineering is a is a classic um, methodology really for recognizing and and almost welcoming change and actually being geared to handling change and and it being part of its approach and part of its prepared mindset. So that might be a slightly longer answer to your question than you anticipated, but I, th- I think that you know it, it's vital. Um, from here onwards, that we we do have an ability to make sense of the situations we're facing, and to deploy the appropriate approach to to as we start to pull that apart and, and separate those those components of the the environment ahead. I mean, I think that to be fair, that your answer is going to absolutely resonate with our listeners. And I think putting it into the context of the people who are listening to this podcast, they are business school educators, MBA students and graduates, and they'll be very familiar with the concept of a VUCA world and and thinking about moving forward into a, a volatile workplace where things could change at any minute. But I think the challenge, I suppose, for our listeners are that they want to be future-proof leaders. They want to be ready to to lead today and tomorrow and and to have that adaptability, that resilience, that change-making focus to be able to thrive. But I suppose in terms of education, the, the MBA program is a very unique one to two year experience that will that will be a very unique time in those people's lives. So how can the business schools during that time take that opportunity to best prepare their students for being leaders in a changing world? Um, I think they could remind their students that it's it's not a laboratory out there. You know, the, the real world is very different from the way that sort of, you know, theories are, are positioned in, in, in a sort of educational environment. Um, it, it's a lot messier. If, if you think it's messy, then it's a lot messier than you think it is. So I think business schools need to need to sort of you know reinforce that with their students. That, that yes, you can teach a sort of a pathway or a, or a model or a framework or an approach, but actually deploying it is going to be a whole lot more difficult than learning it in the first place. So be ready for that. Don't don't sort of underestimate the degree of you know change and evolution that you will be experiencing on a you know on an almost minute by minute basis in a in a real world working environment. I think they need to reinforce the notion of preparation over planning. Um, I, I, think, I think that's absolutely vital in terms of just making sure that they have the right mindset and they have the right sort of, you know, structure to their approach that makes sure they've thought of everything um, and, and they're then able to respond as and when they need to. And I think the third thing probably is they need to send them out there and 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 sort of, you know, get stuck into a role somewhere. I, I don't think there's a lot of um, substitute for, for for sort of frontline experience in this respect. Um, the little anecdotes that I've offered in 
the the elemental change book or all those really where something went wrong or, or or I got it wrong or I misjudged the situation because I'm trying to sort of you know to help people understand that you know just because you've got a lot of years experience of doing this you've probably got a lot of tales of woe as well during during yeah. that the course of that um and uh, you know I've learned a huge amount along the way sometimes through my own you know choices and misjudgment um and hopefully People, when reading that, will understand that actually it's it's okay um, because we are in this very messy environment. Um, but but I just don't think there's any substitute for for being involved somehow, you know, out of the classroom and into the into the real world of, of business and work. No, I think that's great advice. Thank you very much for that. And I, I suppose I can't really take the time to speak to you without asking you about the the, the new normal and 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 the future of work. So I think that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of conversation about in the moment about return to normal, and I think that's perhaps a bit naive in light of the pandemic. It's more about there'll be a, a new orthodoxy. I think that we'll we'll just have to sort of get used to over the coming years, but. The content that I've been reading over the past year has all been about working from home and and engaging teams remotely and and that that sort of side of things. And now we're seeing um, a lot more content, a lot more discussion about the hybrid workplace. But I think that people are still quite unsure what that means. It couldn't be a sort of hot desking situation. But I was really wondering what you, what your sort of take on this is, and 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 how organisations will have to to shift their expectations in regards to how their teams will will use office space will it be more about meetings and collaboration or do you think we'll gradually sort of see uh, a return to the nine to five i agree there's been a lot of talk about the the hybrid workplace but i don't think you can really have a, a sex successful and and effective hybrid workplace without that being a component of a hybrid organization so the the, the, the workplace exists in service of the organization it has a purpose we you know an organization that's sort of you know on the pavement with nothing in front of it saying you know okay so do you think we need some physical workspace well how much do we need where do we need mm. it to be it's all in service of that organization its mission its purpose its values its 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 um you know its its structure its organization its digital strategy all of those things come before a choice of property and come before a choice of workplace i think what we're actually facing here is that um, you know, a lot of elements of a, of a hybrid organization have been kind of bumbling along in an informal sense for, for many years. A lot of organizations have been doing a bit of this already. And what we're actually now saying is we're going to make this a, you know, a conscious choice. We're going we're gonna to create a hybrid organization by design, not by accident or by, by kind of informal osmosis in a way. And that's actually a lot more difficult for organizations than they think, because there's a huge amount of things that they have to actually take into account. One of the stories that I hear the most from from, from organizations I speak to is the difficulty they're having with um, learning and development for their for their younger members yeah. of staff. You know, particularly those people who are leaving a business school environment, going into a workplace, wanting to learn, wanting to be immersed in the organization, everything it does, wanting to listen to people, watch people, hear people. That's not necessarily to say they're always picking up on the right behaviors. You know, it's not it's not a sort of a blanket assumption that sitting there watching someone perform and behave in, in a workplace is always a good thing, but at least it enables that person to make a judgment as to whether they think it's the right thing. They've got a chance to make that judgment. But actually being in a remote uh, environment means that organizations have to work much harder to make sure that they're able to develop um, and include their younger members of staff or their newer members of staff, not always younger, but those 
who are who are recently joining the organization so they can learn all about it i think there are some you know some really pressing challenges that organizations are facing in that respect but i i'd probably also argue that there wasn't really a normal before you know, everything you know this this idea of a new normal well no one really seems to be challenging the fact there was ever an old normal i don't think there was an old normal there were a, there were a series of sort of moving parts um, you know many organizations were sort of you know way ahead of other organizations and and you know there was a huge sort of spread of maturity in relation to these kind of informal hybrid practices using technology um, using technology to communicate being more proactive with engagement of their people and and you know developing and growing their people um, th- there was no static environment that we can say we can return to we we might be returning to something that we regard as familiar which mm-hmm. is sort of you know some of those features and components might be getting on a train or a bus to go to the office or cycling whatever or, or being in that environment face to face but i think it's time we challenge the whole idea of the old normal as much as we, we we sort of struggle with the idea of a new normal but um i think your term orthodoxy probably captures it uh, a little bit more there are some sort of you know there were some certainties we could almost rely on that we we may not be in the future. But I think what we're facing here is organizations and people having to make some some fairly important choices. We we can't expect to have this sort of environment that's been portrayed during lockdown of, you know, going into the office two or three days yeah. a week, having lots of sort of great FaceTime with our colleagues, then going home and doing our own stuff at home. And, you know, one of the things that's always quite fascinating is this idea that, you know, when you go into the office, miraculously, all of your colleagues are there. Mm. Um, and somehow you've all chosen to be there in the same place at the same time, um, because that's not likely to happen unless unless we use a tool like the one I work with, Ghostbase, to, to sort of schedule that um, occupancy planning in a dynamic fashion. Yeah. Um, but organizations will have to make some choices because, you know, and, and most workplaces were probably half occupied at best before lockdown on a day-to-day basis. And I've worked with companies that have taken measurements of all of this stuff for decades. So, you know, peak occupancy of most offices was around about 50 to 55% at best before lockdown. So you can imagine with people only choosing to go in a couple of days a week, you know, the, the levels of occupancy in these offices is going to be tiny. In which case, the sort of the, what we were used to before is no longer sustainable, either for the organization commercially or for, um, you know, the planet effectively. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the amount of waste of energy that we will be, you know, sponsoring effectively by having all of these buildings, um, you know, up and running 24 hours a day when people are choosing to only come in a few days a week. So there's, there are some choices that have to be made in relation to that future workplace. So I can see them being smaller. I can see organizations actually at last and not before time actually considering the purpose of their workplace. Why do we need it? You know, what, what's it doing here? How does it justify itself? And a, a workplace has been probably the only asset that organizations have ever spent a lot of money on where they've never really tested um, its return on investment. They have, you know, most organizations couldn't <laughs> tell you what what value the office was offering other than grabbing at some fairly abstract concepts about engagement and brand and, and, uh, and, and, and you know, collaboration and those sorts of things. But there's, there's virtually no data that any organization has to justify that expenditure. So I think organizations will have to work harder at that in making those choices. But actually, I see it 
in a, in a positive way. I think the sort of workplaces that we'll be creating won't just be catch-all. They won't just be just in case everyone shows up. They won't try and do a bit of everything and do a lot of it badly. They'll actually be very targeted, very purposeful. And, you know, and, and I think the opportunity exists for them to be, you know, fantastic places to be, fantastic places to work. But I should also add, you know, we, we've got to be careful with envisaging the opposite tyranny of being completely isolated at home, of having to spend all day in an office in meetings and collaboration and interaction. You know, mm-hmm. we, we do need some, some mm-hmm. quiet time. We do need to get away from that as well. We, we can't just switch from one subject to another, from one, one think tank or brainstorm to another brainstorm. We'll be completely frazzled by, by lunchtime. You know, we, we've got to be careful that we, we think through quite clearly what we actually mean by, by a sort of a, you know, a, a collaborative environment and what that means. We'll, we'll still need to provide space for people to, to be on their own, to get their head down, to switch off, to, to sort of lose themselves. 100%. Those are great comments. I couldn't agree more. I just want to pick up on one last thing uh, before we end the interview. Um, We talked a little bit about younger and newer members of staff. And I think I'd like to sort of talk about the stereotype, I suppose, of generations. So there has been a stereotype that uh, baby boomers, Generation X, fear change and they don't like it. And it's something that has to be sort of they have to be coaxed and cajoled to sort of move forward that way. Whereas there's a stereotype of generation Y and Z that they they love change and they need things to be changing and really dynamic all the time. How far do you sort of agree with that stereotype? And do you think that there's a way that as these new generations are moving into the workplace and and really sort of, you know, having more of an influence in how we we live and work, how organizations can can really bridge that gap and 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 really implement and, and nurture a change culture? And it's interesting, actually. I've been on a real um, sort of roller coaster with the whole generational question. Um, when, when it was first mooted, sort of several decades ago, I, I found it really quite fascinating. I thought, well, maybe there is something in this. I remember going to some seminars and hearing all about it. I think, gosh, I'd never considered this before. Um, and that was really at the very start of the recognition of what millennials were. Obviously, millennials are now predominantly sort of, you know, quite grown up and <laughs> mature in our workplace. Um, but um, then I sort of started to realize actually that they were quite, it was quite an empty proposition. There wasn't actually a lot of evidence. A lot of this was conjecture and a lot of people really just making it up. Um, and and so, you know, I started to look at what supposedly, um, you know, Gen Y, Gen Z wanted and compare it to what I wanted. And I thought, well, they, I want the same stuff they want, really. I, I don't see any difference. And, you know, so I started describing myself as a seasoned millennial, really, in, in many respects, just, just having similar ideas and outlook, but just being, you know, a, a little bit older. But now I've really sort of, I mentioned it earlier, I've come around to understanding that actually the, the sort of the responsibility organizations have for including their younger people, for developing them, for allowing them to learn and grow is, is absolutely vital. I, I don't think it's got anything necessarily to do with their outlook and their perspective, but I do think that it's really important in respect of them being looked after, being being nurtured and being being able to, um, to learn and grow within the organization. But yeah, let's face it, anybody of, of sort of younger years at the moment entering the workplace could well have joined a job in the last 12 months where they've never actually been to an office and they've never actually met most of their colleagues face to face. And that must be really tough. 
Um, so I think we've got to be careful with the whole sort of you know, supposing that certain generations have got certain attitudes. I'm not sure that necessarily is the case. Um, but I think it's always onus upon those of us who have a little more experience in the workplace to, um, to, to look after those who are joining the workplace for the first time or are in their earlier years, um, you know, to, to hopefully offer the benefit of our experience and, and, and let them make up their own minds as to what the right thing is to do and, and, and the right views to hold. Um, uh, and, and when I look back through my career, um, I'm really grateful for the guidance of a number of people that I interacted with in my early years. I still remember a lot of things they said to me, a lot of little sort of sound bites, if you like, that have stayed with me. Um, and I don't think, you know, I, I would have um, sort of done what I did really without that sort of guidance at the appropriate time. So as long as that still occurs, as long as that that is still very much part of the workplace, um, then I think the you know the the the, gen, the younger generations will thrive and flourish just as just as we've been able to. Um, but the responsibility is both ways. Responsibility is on our generations to to recognise and and look out for the younger people and bring them through. And there is a responsibility on the part of the younger generations to, to sort of watch and listen and to and and to appreciate that that uh, you know the older generations potentially are 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 helping them through that. And I think if we're all working together, if we're all looking out for each other, then I think we'll all be just fine. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today, Neil. It was really great to hear your insight and your practical advice as we move forward in times of change and uncertainty. And as I mentioned at the start of the interview, Neil's book, Elemental Change, Making Stuff Happen When Nothing Stands Still, is available from all good book retailers. And we have a wealth of articles and ambition, which look at the themes we've discussed today from volatility right through to change and agility. And you can access those at www.associationofmbas.com forward slash ambition.